Well, we've been studying the Song of Deborah, and we've been looking at the three stanzas. The first one was an introduction of uh, what God was doing, and then the second stanza had to do with the battle itself between Deborah, Barak, and uh, Susira. And uh, so today we are going to come to the third stanza, Uh, which is what happened after the battle. Um, So uh, we're going to do just a quick review to bring this all up to date here. So if you remember that uh, Deborah came from the tribe of Lisbar, and she came down to the hill country of Ephraim, and it was here that she called Barak together to <clears throat> give into him the word of God that he was to go out and, and fight the enemy. And he says, well, I'll, I'll go if you'll go. So they traveled up here to Mount Tabor where he um, organized his army and um, called a different uh tribes together, called them to arms, and then they moved out, and I just lost my pointer. Well, they moved out across to uh, the plains of Megado, uh, along the Kishon River there, and uh, they went to battle against the enemies of God. And uh, they defeated them with a force of about 10,000 men. But it was God who went before the army. It was God who provided the victory. It was God who blessed their obedience uh, and heard the cry for relief from the oppression and um, brought about a storm that flooded that river and destroyed the iron chariots of the enemy. And so that kind of, again, summarizes where we're at. So the battle has taken place. Um, The enemy's been defeated. And so if you're not there already, turn to Judges uh, chapter 5 and verse As I said earlier, the, the third stanza of the song is uh, describing the aftermath of what happened after the battle. And um, it passes out both curses and blessings. And it closes the song out with a, um, a sense of rejoicing of the destruction of, of the wicked. And so, uh, again, uh, just an overview of, of the stanza. Uh, Miraz is cursed and J.L. is blessed. Uh, and we see that Deborah laughs at the grotesque death of her enemy, uh, Sisera. And Deborah describes herself as a mother in Israel, one who is a servant of the one true living God. 
And she then contrasts herself with the anti-mother, the mother of Sisera, and at the coming sorrows and this evil person will endure. So verse 23 starts off with, Curse Meraz, said the angel of the Lord. And like I said, some believe that's the pre-incarnate Christ speaking. Utterly curse its inhabitants, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to, to the help of the Lord against the warriors. Miraz is believed to have been a, a city or a village close to uh, Mount Tabor, about five miles, they believe, from Mount Tabor, where uh, Barak organized the army. And they did not come to the aid of the Israelites. And uh, so they have uh, been issued a, a curse here. Um, I think that probably they were fearful if the Israelites lost what the Canaanites would do to them. And so they were trying to play both sides against each other. And it turned out that uh, Barak was victorious, and for not participating, they received a curse. Um, I don't know if you've been following the news at all, but Uh, There was an article in Biblical Archaeology that they have uh, uncovered a tablet um, around Mount Ebo, I think, and um, it's believed to be the oldest tablet uh, with the word Yahweh uh, imprinted on it. So we see here archaeological evidence coming out to support biblical truth. And... It's a small uh, foldable uh, tablet, and it says this, You are cursed by the God Yahweh. Cursed. You will die. Cursed. Cursed you will surely die. Cursed you are by Yahweh. Cursed. So we should not be surprised when we read verse 23 where the angel of the Lord curses this city, and so uh, this is supposedly about 3,500 years old, uh, and it's believed to be the oldest uh, tablet on record having Yahweh's name uh, imprinted upon it. So again, we see this uh, reality uh, playing out uh, the truth of the Bible. We're not told whether or not the Israelites destroyed this town Uh, Although, from the command, it it sounds like they probably did. You could imply that. Um, It is the angel of the Lord, that uh, the captain of the Lord's host, who gave that command. And uh, the curse of Meraz uh, for its refusal to help them uh, was very effective. Because, like I said, nobody knows where this city was at. So it's mentioned in Scripture, but nobody knows where it was at. Even to this day, um, they can't locate it. So the curse on Miraz is, is to be uh, contrast with the following verse, which blesses J.L. for her actions in the same situation. So 
So we have the city not helping Israel, uh, even though they were Israelite people, part of the tribes. But here we have uh, verse 24 saying, Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber, the Canaanite. Most blessed is she of women in the tent. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. In a magnificent bowl, she brought him curds, and some believe that was buttermilk or yogurt of some sort. She reached out her hand for the tent peg and her right hand for the workman's hammer. Then she struck Sisera, she smashed his head, and she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed and he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell devastated. In Genesis 3.15, we're given the picture of the serpent's head being crushed by the foot of the seed. And thus we can sign, with the attention called to uh, J.L.'s feet here, uh, we again see a, a bit of a messianic trait being played out, a sim symbolism here uh, of this event, how Christ uh, will again uh, crush the head of, of Satan. We see here the humiliation, um, the uh, total destruction and total um, uh, annihilation of Sisera as it's stressed that he's bowing at her feet. Uh, total submission. I'm not sure exactly how much of, of this is symbolism and how much is reality. I mean, if he was sleeping and, and she drove the stake through his temple and into the ground, I don't know how he can bow down at the feet, but the idea here is that uh, he was destroyed and, and totally humiliated by the power of God's uh, people. Verse 28, we move on, and it says, Out of the window she looked and lamented, the mother of Sisera, through the lattice. Why does this chariot delay in coming? Why do the steps or hoofbeats of his chariot tarry? Her wise princess would answer her. Indeed, she repeats the words to herself. Are they not finding? Are they not dividing the spoil? A womb, two wombs for every warrior. To Sisyrus, a spoil of dyed work, a spoil of dyed work embroidery. Dyed work of double embroidery on the necks of the spoil. So here we have Deborah, the mother of Israel, now speaks of the mother of Sisera. And she's pictured as waiting for her son's return. And the question is, why the delay? And the mother is comforted by the thoughts 
that Sisera must have taken great treasures, and it will take much time to divide up that treasure among the men before he returns. The men, she reasons, have taken girls for themselves. Some of your Bibles translate this as damsels or maidens. Um, the literal translation is womb. She refers to the girls using coarse soldier-type uh, language here um, that views women only in terms of sexual objects. Uh, while reading this, we might be tempted to start to sympathize a little bit with Sisera's mother. After all, she gave birth to him, and she played with him when he was a child, uh, naturally, she would be worried about him. But if we think that way, we will tend to lose God's perspective on this whole situation. We are awakened, I think, to the truth by the coarse language of verse 30 that she uses. And to give a modern translation, we would have to find crude language language that is still uh, unprintable. Um, so I, I'll leave that up to your imagination as to what Deborah might have said about the mother, what, what was transpired here. But remember, it was under divine inspiration of God that this was written. Her serving women says to th this to her, and indeed she repeats the words to herself, so the princes, the serving women, are the ones that were speaking coarsely. And, um, and the mother, yeah, I said, yeah, yeah. And she repeats those same words to herself. So we begin to realize that the reason why Sisera was a vicious enemy uh, of God's people and such a cruel man uh, was that uh, he had a mother that was very similar and raised him up in such a way that uh, that was his example. So you may have heard the term that says uh, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Uh, this can be applied to both good mothers and uh, evil mothers as well. So she does not deserve our sympathy uh, at all. Deborah delights in the misery of the enemy's mother whose vicious ex expectations will not be realized. She was hoping for a total destruction of the Israelite, the victory of her son. Some people say that Deborah's involved in what is referred to as vindictive gloating. But again, uh, Deborah's words here uh, of delight of the, over the misery of her enemy are the divinely inspired word of God. Uh, just a, a reminder of some verses along this line. Proverbs 8.22-31 warns the scoffers not to scorn the truth. Proverbs 1.31 says, Those who scoff at God will eat of the fruit of their own way. 
And then Proverbs 1, 26 and 27 talks about the day of judgment. Uh, God will scoff at them. So with this perspective, we may reconsider Deborah's attitude toward the mother of Sisera. The Canaanite mother was gloating or rejoicing in the anticipation of the destruction of God's people. Those who scoff will be scoffed at. And those who gloat will be gloated over. So in terms of this principle, Deborah rejoices in the humiliation of her adversary. So some people might find this, you know, uh, difficult to, to comprehend this uh, attitude of Deborah's. But um, keep in mind that uh, Ecclesiastics 3.8 says, A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. We don't always live in a static, unchanging world. We don't live in a time where there's no changes at all. So there are appropriate ways to think and appropriate ways to feel about various situations and conditions of life. There are times to hate. Psalm 139, 21-22 Do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with the most utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. It may, <clears throat> we may well rejoice uh, when the rapists, when the Hitlers, when the Stalins, the Mao Zedongs of the world are dead. Until they die, we are to offer them the gospel, share the good news with them, and thereby we are loving God's enemy and our enemy. But once they are dead, however, it may be time to rejoice in their ruin. Verse 31. Thus let all thine enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. And that ends the song and the next Verses, and the land was undisturbed for 40 years. Even when God's enemies are being destroyed, God's people will rise up in glory and in power. Just as the sun rises, I think maybe Deborah might be referring to Genesis 32-31, uh, where the sun rose just as Jacob crossed into the Holy Land after resting with God all night. Deborah is praying here that all of Israel will be like their forefather, who was able to wrestle with God and with man and prevail over them. Her prayer receives an immediate answer in the next story in Judges when we start looking at Gideon. 
For in Judges 8, 4, it says a uh, Gideon, after finding the strength to pursue the enemy all night, returns from the battle at the rising of the sun. And a further fulfillment of this prayer of Deborah's is found in Samson, whose name means sun, S-U-N. And then, of course, the ultimate answer to that prayer is in Revelation 1.16, where the face of Christ is seen as like the sun shining in its strength. I've got a few words of summary and conclusion on the song, but before I do that, do you have any comments as we come to the end of the song of Deborah? From what I've read, I, I believe that it was the angel that God had praised her. We are, you know, we went through the charges against Jael a few weeks ago, and uh, then we looked at what some of the commentators believe this was God's uh, evaluation of her. So I would say yes. Yeah, it's sobering, isn't it? Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, Micah? Yeah. So it's 
Right. Picture the gospel. All right, I have a kind of a tie up some loose ends here uh, dealing with the song of Deborah. Um, as you probably already heard, some of the other gentlemen, uh, this is a song of contrast, you know, left, right, up, down, black and white. <coughs> uh, there are obviously two mothers talked about in this song. Uh, and there are two seeds, Israel and Sisera. Uh, who were raised up by them, the mothers. We see that Deborah, the mother of Israel, called by God to judge in righteousness, and of course the mother of Sisera, who's gloating in the destruction of God's people. And again, symbolic, as, as Micah said, of, of Satan, who uh, seeks to destroy uh, God and his people. Second thing of contrast, uh, there were two storms mentioned in this song. One storm was at Sinai, and the other was on the plains of Megado. Uh, uh, during the battle, we, we know that there was a storm there that uh, flooded the river, destroyed uh, the enemy army. Um, we want to be careful not to see these as two different events. Because God's fierce storms rages throughout history and ever destroying his enemies, as we saw see in Revelation 16, 12 through 19. The great storm of history did not destroy God's people in Sinai because they were under the blood of the Passover lamb. The same storm bypassed God's people at the Battle of Megiddo because the people were with Barak, who was attempting to restore God's sanctuary. But as for the enemies of God, Sisera and his army, the great storm of God destroyed them. And I said, God's great storm's judgment rages throughout history. So we are either safe in the sanctuary of Christ and God, or we are outside exposed to his wrath. Connected to the great storm of history is, is the great floods of history, beginning with the creation of the world in uh, Genesis 1-2, where uh, God separated the water from the dry land. And then in Genesis 1-9, uh, later on, I'm sorry, later on in Genesis, we see man's sin reached a climax and the ancient deluge washed clean the land and cleansed the land by the flood of Noah. That ancient flow with, uh, drew uh, and let Israel pass through the Red Sea and through the Jordan River as well on dry land. But that same flood destroyed Pharaoh and all his chariots. So scripture teaches us Christ. Uh, teaches us that it is in the grace of God that keeps us safe. It is Christ who still calms the sea. So those who enter the waters of baptism will not be drowned in the ancient torrent. Ultimately, the ancient rush of water flows from God himself and signifies his judgment 
So it says the voice of the Lord is as voices of many waters in Ezekiel and Revelations. The next thing we see in the Song of Deborah is that there are two responses to the call. We are not surprised to read the roll call of the faithful tribes who came and fought with Barak. But what is harder to understand is the open ridicule that the song has against those who did not come to fight. Can you imagine year after year going to the watering places in Israel and hearing this song of Deborah sung, and you're a member of one of those tribes that did not respond? How embarrassing your compromising tribe uh, is ridiculed even beyond the battle that took place here. So every time they hear the song of Deborah, uh, should prick their conscience that they had compromised and did not uh, follow God's command. On the day of judgment, Christ will judge his people, and that judgment will be thorough and, and specific. But the song of Deborah does not come at the end of history. Um, I don't know. Perhaps we need just a, a book of Judges for today that uh, lists some of the so-called evangelical people who have compromised their stand on biblical truth. Just food for thought. Well, we as Christians must not be people characterized by personal vengeance and rage, yet I think we ought to not shy away from being frank and truthful in dealing with people who compromise the truth. Compromisers, I believe, should be exposed for the good of the church. Finally, there are two responses to opportunity. Deborah's song is clearly a song of judgment and evaluation. Miraz was in the area of the battle, and as an Israelite city, should have taken the opportunity to assist God's people for their refusal to help, they were cursed. On the other hand, Jael, who was not a member of Israel directly and who was under a treaty with the enemy, she took uh, the opportunity to align herself with God and God's people and defended him uh, in this battle against the enemy. So for this bold deed, she is praised above all women, even above Deborah herself. So I think in a crisis, our true hearts are revealed. And uh, may we uh, well prove to be faithful as Jael was, and not faithless as Miraz, when the critical day of, of us taking a stand uh, appears. So that ends my comments and ends the uh, uh, tale or story of, of uh, Deborah, and the song of Deborah. Any other passing comments before we move on?
Well, we talked about that. I mean, it was her role to put up the tents, so she had the strength probably, because she's used to, yeah. You know, the guys sat over here on the rug, and, and they put up the tents and feed the camels and that kind of thing. I agree. Very mysterious. Well, what I want to do in the time remaining is kind of lay some groundwork, some background information uh, as we move on. Uh, It's about 350 years or thereabouts since Joshua's death, and the judges have come uh, into the land to bring God's word and, and uh, judgment to the uh, backslidden Israelites. And so now we find ourselves, again, about 350 years into this. We come to Gideon. And um, so I want to just make a, a few background comments on Gideon and then jump into the meat of that uh, the next time. I think the story of Gideon and his son Abimelech uh, is not easy to divide into sections, um, like I did here with uh, Deborah. Uh, There's so many topics and issues that overlap and intertwine, it's it's a difficult way to divide it up. So I'm going to just kind of be broad in my um, explanation here. So some of the larger concerns that we find as we study Gideon in this section, starting in chapter 6, verse 1, we see the judgment of sin. We see the oppression of the Midianites, the Amalekites, and Ishmael. And then we see the outcry, and we see God's deliverance. Uh, We see in the process of all of this, God is working with and through Gideon and maturing his faith. We see Israel drifting towards, uh, again, Baalism, and particularly what uh, the Baalist philosophy brings is a 
statist order where man controls man and um, rather than relying on God. And again, we see judgment for sin, oppression from within the nation through Abimelech, and then deliverance from that. And again, we see this ongoing war that God is having with Satan through the Baal worship um, and how time and time again he has to judge his people from straying from the truth and straying from the one true God. So like I've already said, there's two periods of oppression under Gideon. The first one is under the Midianites, and the second one is under the false king Abimelech. So rather than give a list of all the interactions between God and man in Judges 6 through 9, it's simpler to summarize it by noting that God judges Israel for her sin, uh, starting in Judges 6. And then we see Israel begins to repent. And then we see God raise up a deliverer and Gideon. And God reacts with Gideon in a series of commands and promises to which Gideon responds in, in uh, faith. So after the battle, Gideon passes on a whole series of judgments uh, or evaluations from the Lord. Some judgments were against the heads of the enemy army, against two Israeli towns, and against the tribe of Ephraim. Gideon's final command, uh, speaking for the Lord, is that their king is God, not man. Their king is God, not man. Of course, the people will reject that. They want to be like other nations. In his old age, however, Gideon begins to be unfaithful to this rule. And since Israel lusts after a king, then God, again, gives them the sin, let them indulge in that sin and suffer from that sin which they wanted to have. And so they become oppressed under Abimelech. Even though nothing is said about human repentance, God eventually does deliver Israel from Abimelech, and this time without any human deliverer. Rather, God just lets the evil work chew itself up, uh, go after uh, evil after evil, and destroys itself. So one of the foundational elements of Baalism, as I said when we first started this um, series is the idea of statism, the absolute rule of man over other men by means of force. And that's the direction that the people of Israel are heading uh, at this time. And it will be that battle is fought throughout the rest of Judges. So like I said at the beginning of this study, Baalism is a philosophy that believes that nature is ultimate and that man is the stimulator of nature. Thus, he's the ruler over nature, making man superior. And this also means that man is the stimulator and ruler over other men, 
since they are also part of nature. And so this is where we start to see this, rather than allowing God and his uh, laws uh, penetrate the society, we see the mess that we're in our t- today where we see man ruling over other men in our own culture and society. So the story of Abraham or Gideon and Abimelech shows the connection between Baalism and statism. Again, a theme that is carried on through the rest of the book. So look at verse 1, chapter 6. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord gave them into the hands of the Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian, the sons of Ishmael, uh, sons of Israel, made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, as well as no sheep or ox or donkey. For there would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they'd come in like locusts for a number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land and devastated it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. We see here that God begins to lose patience with the Israelites, that their sin, again, uh, essentially uh, revolved around Baalism and the worship of Baal. Um, it's very clear about that and as we get to verse 25. But God is so provoked with them that, uh, and their reoccurring sin that he did not sell them into slavery or bondage this time. He gave them away. And they became under considerable oppression for seven years. The severity of that oppression is noted in terms of several factors. The first is that the Israelites made caves in which to hide. Man is made of dust, and the curse of man is to go back to dust. And to hide underground in Scripture has always been a sign of a curse. Uh, as in the case of Lot, who dwelt in a cave after leaving Sodom and was uh, there sired two of the great enemies of Israel, Moab and Ammon. So we see them going into the caves because of their oppression and living there um, because of uh, of the enemy taking over their land, taking over their food, destroying everything. You can see that the size of some of those caves are pretty large. Could hold large groups, number of people, um, families, uh, to live in those uh, caves. Second uh, thing to observe here, each year the enemy would sweep into the land uh, like a vast swarm of locusts. Uh, Judges 8.10 estimates them to be about 135,000. 
men. They would just strip the land bare of all vegetation, of all livestock. In verse 4, it identifies the area of the oppression as the northern part of Israel. Um, perhaps the Midianites did not want to deal with the Philistines in the south. I don't know. Third, the presence of the cruel uh, Amalekites are among the oppressors indicated. Um, so that indicates the severity of the oppression. We know the Amalekites are probably one of the worst, cruelest enemies that Israel had to deal with. So that tells us a little bit about uh, the degree of the oppression. Uh, and then there was the Midianites, uh, who were apostate descendants from Abraham. And the Midianites attacked Israel during the wilderness wanderings. And so uh, they were also, on the advice of Balaam, the sent Midianites sent their women in to try to lure the Israelites into sin. And that was curtailed by Phineas, uh, who skewered a fornicating couple uh, to end or bring reality to the sin that they were uh, performing. Gideon will eventually become a kind of a second Phineas in that regard. And it says the sons of the east. Um, this phrase refers to uh, uh, the Ishmaelites, uh, Judges 8:24 and other descendants of Abraham. Uh, these people were nomads. They were scavengers. Uh, they roamed the earth, uh, getting whatever they can from anybody they can. They had no culture. They had no home. They just wandered from place to place, robbing and pillaging. So that kind of sets the background of, of what was happening at the time that, uh, of Gideon. Um, and then we'll go into more depth uh, in the weeks to come. Any thoughts, any closing comments? Or closing prayer? Okay. Brother Dale, would you close us in prayer, please? Amen. You're dismissed.